Hello, and welcome to Prophecy Girls, a Buffy rewatch podcast. I'm Kara Babcock, pronouns she, her. And I'm Stephanie Chow, pronouns she, her. Join us each week as we break down every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the beginning. This is a spoiler-free podcast, and we're currently on season two. Whether you're watching for the first time, or longtime fans like us, we'll be analyzing every episode, character, and storyline like it's our first time, too. During this rewatch, we'll reminisce about our memories of Buffy, discuss the show's cultural impact, and provide honest commentary on the show. Thanks for listening. Now on to the episode. Interview with the Vampire. This is your bonus episode from Prophecy Girls Podcast. Kara and I watched Interview with the Vampire, even though we so want to say Interview with a Vampire. And we're going to review it for you. As a lot of you know, we did the Buffy, the movie bonus episode when we finished season one. And we've decided we want to continue to bring you little bonus episodes here and there that are tangentially related to the Buffyverse in some way. So they might be topics about Buffy, about series related to Buffy, could be vampire related in the case of this movie. We've got a big list. You can always suggest things for us too. But we we chose to start with this one because this is one of Steph's favorite books and movies from would you say like childhood or yeah. like your teenage years? It kind of horrifies me that it was like a childhood favorite of mine now that we've rewatched it. And I'm like, whoa, there's a lot of graphic violence <laughs> in here. However, yeah, I watched this movie a lot when I was young and I read the book and I reread the book not too long ago for my book club, maybe like three years ago. There are very subtle differences between the two, um, but I do enjoy both of them. I think the book was really good. But and I think some things translated onto screen really well, some didn't. But overall, this movie is one of my favorites growing up. Not, maybe not so much anymore. There's there's a lot of things that you and I can critique in there. But there's no other vampire movie like this, in my opinion. It's very unique. It brings you to a time and place. There's a lot of things that, about it that set it apart from your other typical vampire movies, especially ones that you see nowadays. That's a great way of introducing it. Yeah. So... In contrast, I've never seen the full movie. I remember seeing bits and pieces when I was a kid. I think my parents had a copy on VHS. So, like, the only thing I remembered about this movie was Kirsten Dunst as, like, a 10-year-old vampire girl. (laughs) And the creepiness of that was burned into my childhood brain. But I had never watched the movie all the way through, so... I thought it would be a really cool experience to watch it with you. We watched it together. Yeah. And it was fun hearing your thoughts on like, oh, this is what I thought of it before. And hearing you talk about how attractive you find Brad Pitt. <laughs> Me and every other woman in the world. <laughs> and uh, Antonio Banderas, I think you were also pretty into him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He. There are so many big names in this movie. I know it's it's star studded and I know it did well in the box office purely because Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt and Antonio Banderas were starring in it. And they were like heavy hitters or heavy hitters now. But back then they were huge, like in the 90s, just like big, big Hollywood stars and just starting their careers, too. So I think the three of them and Christian Slater's in there, too, taking on this gothic vampire erotic (laughs) movie 
it was probably such a sensation. Let's uh, give the, the listeners a little bit of a plot summary here. And obviously, right, we're going to be spoiling the movie for you. So if you haven't seen this movie and you don't want spoilers, pause the episode now and go watch it. You can rent <laughs> it on YouTube or find it elsewhere and uh, come back and listen to all of our thoughts about it. Yeah. So basically, Interview with the Vampire, which is based on a novel by Anne Rice, is about a vampire named Louis, played by Brad Pitt. And he is being interviewed by a reporter who's played by Christian Slater. (laughs) And he basically tells the reporter his life story from when he was turned into a vampire. At the end of the 18th century, he was a plantation owner in New Orleans. So he owned slaves, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I'm sure. He gets turned into a vampire by Tom Cruise, whose name in the film is Lestat. And they have a rocky relationship, I would say, for the next hundred years or so. They have a really tough time. Like a lot of couples who don't get along, (laughs) they try to fix things by having a kid. By transforming 10-year-old Kirsten Dunst into a vampire because her parents have died from the plague. And like any couple who's not getting along and tries to have a kid, it doesn't really work out very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, Louis and Kirsten Dunst's vampire character, they they take off. They... um, Try to dispose of Lestat, but they're not very good at it. Cause yeah, they sucked at that. Louis like the world's worst vampire. Kirsten Dunst is scarily competent for a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. So they leave. They GTFO from Colonial New Orleans, get on a uh, boat, and they go across the Atlantic Ocean. And they're ostensibly in search for their own kind, right? So Lestat was like, he claimed ignorance. And he's like, I don't know, you know, anything about vampire culture. Um, and Louis curious because he's really tortured and conflicted about killing people. Yep. Um, and Kirsten Dunst's character is um, Claudia. Sorry, is her name. She's just really curious. I think she really wants to like meet other vampires. So eventually, they end up in France during the Belle Epoque, and uh, they meet Antonio Banderas, who is a vampire, and he's, like, nominally the leader of this really, like, how would you describe them? Like, uh, avant-garde? Yeah, avant-garde and, like, sinister. Like, they're, like, kind of, like, dejected. Like, I don't know. They're they're not the kind of vampires that Louis and Claudia are. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah. They do vampire theater, basically, in <laughs> Paris, <laughs> and so it's so freaky. Like, why? <laughs> why? And it's not what Louis and Claudia were hoping for. They were hoping for some, like, badass old-school vampires, and they don't get that, and no. it's very disappointing. They get these jokesters, yeah. There's more, you know, erotic tension between Louis and uh, Antonio Banderas' character, and, of course, it all ends in tears. Uh, the other vampires try to kill Louis and Claudia because they learned that they offed Lestat, and apparently... That's the one unforgivable vampire crime is killing another vampire. And they don't succeed at killing Louis because Antonio Banderas decides to save Louis, but he's really bad at it and he doesn't save Claudia in time. And I'll never forgive him for that because I stand Claudia. Uh-huh. Um, but Louis escapes and, and he leaves and he leaves Antonio Banderas too. And he goes back to New Orleans and he's all sad and emo for like a hundred years. Yep. Uh, and then he finds out that Lestat is still alive and has been in New Orleans this whole time. And I'm just like, 
Lestat's really bad at getting back in touch, and you're really bad at killing people, Louis. And I think the moral of the story is this: like these are all very incompetent people. Yep. Uh, who have been cursed with immortality, and it's not good. Like none of the vampires in this story are happy. Yeah, I I think what's interesting is like when you say they've been cursed with immortality, I think that's the crux of what they are, right? They're they are cursed beings. They're cursed creatures, and. You know, we talk a lot about curses in Buffy because obviously Angel has cursed with his soul. But in this case, this immortality and vampirism or whatever, it's just like a long slog of sadness for their whole lives. That's what Louis would make you believe is that being a vampire. And I think there's a lot of movies out there and stories out there that's like the vampires think they have the best life. Like they're like, this is this is the Mm -hmm. way to be and you should want to be like us. But in this case, this particular movie and this particular vampire lore, being a vampire is like an existential crisis. It's like so boring and long and like, what do I do with my life? That's, that's what we're made to believe because Louis is our main character. Louis is the one that we're following around and the one that's doing the interview. <laughs> and very unclear why he chose to be interviewed. Did he ever say? I can't even remember. No, there's no real explanation there. And I mean... You know, there is an interpretation. I don't know if it's a particularly fruitful interpretation, but Louis could be considered an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. And it's possible he's lying about all of this, right? It's possible that he's not actually a vampire. He's (laughs) just very, you know, mistaken, maybe mentally ill or deceiving the reporter on purpose. And then so at the very end of the movie, after the interview's over, the reporter is like, oh, okay, cool. Make me into a vampire. I think that'd be really cool. And Louis just like, wow, like you really haven't been paying attention to my whole story because it sucks. Yeah. So um, Louis like beats up the reporter a bit to kind of scare him off and then disappears. And the reporter gets in his car and drives away. And surprise, for some reason, Lestat is in the car. Feeling better. <laughs> and attacks Christian Slater. Uh, and then takes off into the night to the Rolling Stones. But, you know, in, in this interpretation, if Louis is not actually a vampire, right? Lestat is another contemporary of his who's also not a vampire, who maybe, like, has been stalking Louis. And, Definitely has been stalking Like, Louis. this is all in Louis's head. And this is his way of making sense of, like this psycho Lestat who's been pursuing him for the last few years or something. Like, again, I don't know how useful an interpretation that is because I don't think it's as interesting as the actual story that we see in the movie. But I just thought I'd point that out there because you're right. Like, that was something I noticed when I watched the movie is it's a frame story. And why why is there a frame story there? Why do we have this reporter? Because we only cut back to him a couple of times and he does not contribute anything. <laughs> just there to listen. What I think is really brilliant about this plot device, right, and having Louis tell his story from the beginning is that that's like so classic and rice, and it's just a, a brilliant way to introduce the vampire lore because so often we're mm-hmm. told about the vampire through the human, right? Or like Dracula, like all these things, or like Salem's Lot. Like it's usually about how the human's interpreting it. Oh, yeah. So to have the vampire kind of take you into his world. Within the first eight minutes of the movie, Louis turned like Lestat finds him and turns him into a vampire. So, yeah, I, I think that's a really great way to introduce us to this kind of story and to let it play out. Yeah, that's actually a really great point is 
this is a movie from the point of view of the vampire. Yeah. Right? <laughs> interview that with is, the vampire. That is quite different. We don't see that again until we see Angel, um, <laughs> the series, I True. guess. True. True. Yeah, that's cool. We should, I feel like there was only one way to talk about the movie, and it's like to talk about all the positives and then get right into the things that didn't make sense or that we didn't like. Okay. <laughs> one positive that I've had, and probably the reason I kept coming back when I was a kid, was the costumes and the makeup and the set and the wigs, just not Antonio Banderas's wig. I just thought it, it was a very visually stunning movie. And, you know, it takes you from the 1700s in New Orleans to Paris, but then it takes you all the way to the 90s, which is where Louis is telling his story. So, so I, I really have always loved the look of this film. I think it's a treat to look at mm -hmm. another positive we have to talk about like the casting the casting of kirsten dunst as claudia and she was 12 years old i think when they casted her and she had quite the role to play and i think she pulled it off brilliantly and i know she got a lot of accolades from critics at the time i see why i see why too and i love that you said earlier that it's like you know lestat and louis we're having trouble in their relationship, so they adopted a kid to fix everything, and uh, it didn't really work out for them. But the fact that Kirsten Dunst had to develop mentally and sexually and had to mature, basically, as a 12-year-old over a span of, let's say, 80 to 100 years, she pulled it off, and it was remarkable. And you and I talked about that while we were watching the movie. We were like, how, how can she stay with the brain of a 10-year-old or 12-year-old or whatever but be in her 40s or 50s or 60s like how is that so yeah that so be? i brought this up while we were watching the movie yeah. because i thought it was really interesting and i i think that the, the i can't speak to the books i haven't read the book but i think that the movie handles this this issue very well so when you are turned into a vampire you become immortal and you freeze at the biological age that you were when you returned right and something that I was thinking about is how she's prepubescent. She hasn't, you know, experienced the hormones of puberty. And she also hasn't experienced a lot of the changes that happen to our brains and our neurochemistry as we go through adolescence into adulthood, right? Like the, the brain really doesn't settle down in terms of changes. Like it's changing throughout your whole life, obviously. But like the major changes don't settle down until you're like in, well into your 20s. Mm -hmm. So... She's Im functionally immortal, but as she ages chronologically, she's not aging biologically. So her brain is frozen as a 10-year-old's brain, mm -hmm. which means that she's gaining experiences and memories, but she doesn't have the physical ability to mature as she experiences things because her brain chemistry is locked as a, a prepubescent child. So I thought that was an interesting dilemma in terms of creating her character. Because like you said, as she gets quote-unquote older as a vampire, she definitely changes. She has, she becomes more ruthless. I think she embraces her vampiric qualities far more readily than Louis ever does. Mm -hmm. She, I mean, she's the one who turns on Lestat, and it's just brilliant. I just love that whole exchange. <laughs> and she's like, I set you up, and I gave you dead man's blood and stuff. But I like how... They still make it clear that she's very much a child. Yeah. You know, there's a scene a bit earlier before that where she sees a woman bathing and we get some gratuitous full frontal nudity. Mm -hmm. Thanks, 90s movies. <laughs> 
And then we find out later on she killed the woman and like hid her in her bed and covered her with dolls. And when Lestat finds out, she's like, I want to be her because she's aware intellectually that she's never going to grow up. She's never going to mature into womanhood. But her reaction is that of a 10-year-old, right? She doesn't understand it. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to her sexuality, I don't see her as a sexual being because I don't think she has the capacity to understand that. Mm-hmm. You know, when we get to the near the end of her part of the story, Louis is about to leave her for um, Armand. That's Ant- Antonio Banderas' character. She knows this. So she's very smart about it. And she goes out and she finds a woman who's willing to be turned into a vampire which you know consent is key i li- i like that <laughs> this this whole story is really just a, a cautionary tale about consent right because the stat really never asked louis if he wanted to be a vampire and look how that turned out um whereas claudia's like i'm gonna make sure you're willing here and she finds this woman right and she very much still wants a parent she's got louis who's been her parent for a century or so now And she's like, okay, well, if you're leaving me, I need another parent. And I think part of that is practical because she's aware that at her perceived age, she can't just go through society by herself. She needs a chaperone. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, emotional. She has, as much as she has grown up in terms of her experiences, that frozen brain chemistry means she's always really going to have those needs of a 10-year-old, I think. So, yeah, the movie is so good, I think, at walking that line because this is something that i find a lot of media about immortal characters doesn't really consider is how the weight of having centuries of memories and experiences will change you and i think it's bad enough for adults who have more developed brains but when we're talking about kids who become immortal i think that's a whole other story and i was very impressed with how the movie handled that yeah and when, when I say that it's like like she's maturing sexually as well, I think it's because I always read into it, possibly because it's Brad Pitt and he's the hottest man in the world. I always just saw her as she matured and got older and started acting more like a woman as opposed to a little girl, that she mm-hmm. was in some way attracted to, to Louis or that they had some sort of connection. That's how I read it when I was younger. And because mm-hmm. she kisses him on the lips right before they're taken uh, by Armand's vampire troop so i always saw it that way but i think what you're saying is is absolutely right and there's a lot of different ways that you could definitely interpret claudia's behavior and the way that she matures yeah i mean let's just talk about the the kissing and the blood and the sucking of wrists and the homoeroticism like this is a, a steamy movie right well i think we had talked about it during the movie and i think i said that uh this movie wouldn't be made nowadays I don't think it would. It's just a little bit too... I, I don't know if homoerotic is the right way to, to describe it, but you're right. There's a lot of... I, w- I would just like to say erotic, right? Okay. I don't I don't like really prefixing it with homo because I think that gives an undue emphasis on, on, on the gayness. Like okay. gay stuff is just erotic, right? For At least it is for people who like gay stuff. So let's just call it erotic. And yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think we were talking about that because... I, w- I was looking at, even at the very beginning, with the way that Lestat and Louis were interacting and the creation of a vampire is very sexual and a vampire feeding on somebody is very sexual. And I think for the most part, 
the, their victims are women, right? And usually, like, lower class, like, sex workers. Like, yeah. or... But no, for sure, like, Lestat and Louis were in a relationship, in my opinion. I think that they, mm-hmm. like, as much Absolutely. as, like, Lestat saw him and wanted him because it's Brad Pitt, then who wouldn't? <laughs> and he turned him, and then Louis just started just hating Lestat for making him what he was because Louis just could not deal with the fact that he's this, like, creature. And he had a lot mm-hmm. of that, like, Catholic guilt and like that human morality stayed with him but Lestat had let that go a long time ago so as time went on Louis just got more and more fed up with Lestat which is why he turned Kristen Dunst in Claudia um, to keep Louis with him and even then mm-hmm. Louis and Claudia ended up growing closer together and they left him and Louis then turned the head of Armand, like Armand as in Antonio and Banderas, wanted Louis so bad that that's why he let Claudia and her new companion die. He knew that Louis would never let Claudia go. Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't mm-hmm. pick up on that. Yeah, so Ar- and Armand, yeah. by the way, played by Antonio and Banderas, also super, super hot and sexy. Probably the sexiest <laughs> one in there, if anything. Uh, he's supposed to be this Russian kid. In the books, he was. What? Yeah, he's like he's like an, an eighteen year old Russian okay. person. So whatever, re- like genius casting to change that up <laughs> and bring in Antonio. Antonio Banderas, <laughs> famous Russian actor. <laughs> I like this. I like this a lot. Um, but anyway, I, he totally wanted Louis as well. Like Louis is yeah. the hottest piece of vampire ass on the planet. Everyone <laughs> wants a piece, and that's why he let Claudia die. So right. And Louis did, in the books, he did spend time with Armand. Like, he did travel with him for a couple years, at least, before leaving him, because he was too sad, because Louis is a sad, sad boy. <laughs> yes, Louis is very, very emo. No, I so I didn't pick up on Armand purposefully sacrificing Claudia, yeah. but I did, I did see, obviously, the attraction there, and I did pick up on why, probably because the film's not super subtle about it, but, you know, Armand is talking about how he is attracted to Louis and I think many of the other vampires are as well because Louis's tortured soul act is it brings him closer to being human again to being living right and we're supposed to understand that this curse of immortality it lifts the weight of morality off most vampires shoulders so they don't feel bad about killing people but it also snuffs out some of the joy of life. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and yeah. Louis, even though he's tortured, he's closer to a living soul than the other vampires are. And that is, it's this beacon for Antonio Banderas. So I thought that was really interesting. And also and why he let Louis burn up all his friends. <laughs> because those people didn't have any humanity left in them, right? I mean, certainly not Claudia. She was a monster and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But just to get back to the gay stuff and whether or not this movie would be made, something I remember telling you at the at the time was I think this is a movie very much of its time. It's a very 90s movie. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways, as much as we talk more openly about queer identities and queer politics and queer sexual politics especially on the internet i think hollywood has become more conservative and yes we're seeing more openly gay characters and stuff in movies but a lot of the time it is repackaged for the male gaze you know a lot of the biggest queer stuff that we see these days 
um, is like, ooh, they're gay, they're lesbian. Isn't that hot, right? It's kind of like uh, it's meant to attract the cis straight male viewer to be like gawk at these lesbian characters. So I, I found this movie so fascinating because the eroticism and and the gay subtext there is it's not even really subtext it's just there like i don't know how you could walk out of this movie and think that louis and lestat were just friends yeah right like you would have to be willfully ignoring (laughs) all of the movie to come to that conclusion and i think that makes it that makes it more subversive uh than a lot of the stuff that we're seeing right now yeah, I agree. And it's also so interesting that these actors who were at the top of their game at the time signed up for a movie like this, right? And I think it just goes to back to the book and how popular that book is. Well, I'm just so curious, like, how that pitch meeting went, right? It's like, all right, like, interview with the vampire, gay vampires, who's going to play them? You know what I mean? And I do, I did read somewhere that Tom Cruise was really against the gay element of these characters. Shocking. Shocking, I know. But, but- he... He decided to keep doing the movie because it had all these incredible stunts that he could do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He could like light himself on fire and jump out the window and whatever else. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why I loved it so much and why I keep watching that movie. I think it's just so hot. It's good. Va- vampire sexiness is always I mean, a good thing. I I could have done without all the wrist fetishization, really. I could have done with more. (laughs) Well, that's another thing that I thought was actually really good about this movie. It's a horror movie. Like, it's it's of the horror genre. And I was telling you while we were watching it, I was like, I can't believe my parents let me watch this. Like, where was my supervision? But I watched it so much. And uh, I think it's because it's not your outright typical horror genre type of movie. It's like an art house horror movie, but it's still got these very vicious and gory scenes like when when mm-hmm. they kill these women right like there's lots of blood involved when claudia slices tom cruise's neck and he turns into like a wax figure like that's pretty graphic we see mm-hmm. claudia burn to death more or less right there's a lot of things in here that are that are quite scary um but it doesn't feel like that when you're watching it. Like I'm not. It's not like ooh, I'm scary. It's more like this is like chilling. This is like yeah. A- I get what you mean. I I tend not to watch a lot of horror movies because I find that, especially again, especially the most modern stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, although that is changing. There's so much gore, or even in some of the more modern stuff where they've toned down the gore, it's kind of like the whole horror movie is is based on this suspense that. It's not always reified satisfactorily for me, right? And I don't know. I'm very picky with what horror movies I like. Mm-hmm. And I liked this one. Um, didn't love it, but didn't hate it either. And I think when you said art house, I'm just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because thinking about like Claudia's death in particular, the way, just the style of execution is just so elegant. <laughs> you know, trapping her and her companion in this pit so that when the sun rises, they're going to be dusted. Yeah. And then having them in that pose where Claudia is clinging to this other woman and mm-hmm. she's like trying to shelter Claudia and they, they've turned to ash. Yeah. But they're like preserved in a way until Brad Pitt bursts in there and then stupidly touches them and they crumble in front of his eyes. And it's a very emotionally charged scene. You know, they could have just lopped off their heads or something, right? Like, right. that was a really cool 
decision in terms of how to present everything. And I, I don't know how it was done in the book, but from page to screen, it looks pretty badass. You know, I that actually, <laughs> we just covered What's My Line Part 2. Remember when Kendra locks Angel in that cage? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if they walked in and he had been dusted and it's just like a little ashy <laughs> thing of Angel? I mean, it would have saved us a lot of, of difficulties in the second half of the season, <laughs> but we'll get to that when we record Surprise innocence right but <laughs> yeah um okay so what were some things that maybe we didn't enjoy as much about this movie so like i said i've seen this movie many times however i always kind of stop watching after antonia banderas goes yeah, so fair. that tied in with what we're just talking about which is the horror genre the ending of this movie is the only time where i think they do that traditional uh typical horror genre thing where Tom Cruise pops out of the back seat, bites Christian Slater on the neck, and then plays music as he drives away. Like, I think that is probably the most 90s horror movie thing that they did. And I, I don't like the way it ended there. But mostly because yeah. I kept screaming at the TV, like, who's driving? Like, <laughs> this is dangerous, you guys. You're on a bridge. So I didn't <laughs> like the ending of the movie. And I never did. And I usually stop. But it's also, I usually stop because I think pacing in this movie is a little off as well. We get, like, it's okay, the beginning, right? The beginning's good. Okay, sure. We learn about Louis's new lifestyle and how him and Lestat are living together and how that's going. But things really pick up for the movie when Claudia's introduced. And then you have that middle section where the three of them are living together as Claudia ages, you know, internally. And it's almost like you're watching, like, like Three's Company or something that we talked about in TED, like... It's almost like you're watching this other movie, this other like sitcom about two dads and their kid. And then the horror comes in, they get rid of Lestat, and Claudia and Louis take off, and it's just not as fun after that. Because once you get to mm-hmm. this like avant-garde vampire troupe, you and I were getting really confused, and we were like, things are kind of down now, and we're just left with sad Louis. <laughs> and it, things just like slow down near the end, I think. So there's a pacing issue with this film. I completely agree. You know, I, I'm always here for the story. And like this, the story overall is interesting. Mm-hmm. But the way that they develop the narrative, it just feels like a series of disjointed scenes. Mm-hmm. And for the first two thirds of the movie, like you were saying, that is okay. It's adequate because of the magnetism and chemistry of the main characters and then once claudia is gone i'm just like interest dips and then they leave armand behind i'm just like interest dips further (laughs) yeah yeah and so it's yeah like the last part of the movie i think is the weakest part and that's never what you want to (laughs) hear about your movie yeah well i mean it's also because like we said louis is a sad main character he's a sad boy he's like please make me a vampire then he's like this sucks i don't want to be a vampire it's like louis you said you wanted this. well so so lestat's attracted to him right because he he starts off the movie sad he's sad about his wife and her you know his wife had died in childbirth and he's like i'm never going to love again because he's big drama boy which i'll say is a nice addition because in the book it's just his brother like his brother dies and he's sad about that right so this is good i mean this this guy is just very fragile right it's like one person (laughs) dies and he's just like i'm done (laughs) done you know you're living in the 18th century like life expectancies are not high right now dude yeah plague is gonna come at any time like really (laughs) so 
you know, like you said, Lestat turns him into a vampire, and immediately he's just like, this was a bad idea. And then, can we talk about the very poor, racist portrayal of the enslaved black people in this movie? Yeah, it's really bad. I don't know what else to say about it. Like, there's like it's so blatantly racist and so... so. Well, so just to explain again for anybody who hasn't seen the movie and is still listening and enjoying our spoilers of it. Um, so, like we mentioned earlier, Louis is a plantation owner, so he is a slave owner. Um, so, boo for him. He was already bad even when he was a not a vampire. So, I don't know why he's torturing himself right now because he's already got blood on his hands. Mm. Um, but then after he gets turned into a vampire, he's still hanging around his house. Like, nobody's going to notice that he doesn't go into the sunlight. <laughs> and all of his enslaved servants uh, have noticed. But the movie chooses to portray them as extremely superstitious. And they're, like, doing these dances and rituals where they're, like, slaughtering chickens. Mm-hmm. And it's it just strikes me as extremely disrespectful. Because, yes, there were lots of what's called animism like worship of ancestor spirits and spirits of animals and stuff in various african cultures right and as we learned uh from a previous episode from phoenix right like voodoo or hoodoo comes from certain african cultures and beliefs Mm -hmm. but that's not really portrayed in this movie right this is a a flat a flattening of that an oversimplification in the grossest most like spectacularizing way it's very sensationalized so they're all dancing around you know they're portrayed as being very primitive uh eventually they they take up the torch and the pitchforks right they're like okay we're gonna burn this shit down yeah unfortunately louis doesn't let them have their moment because he's just like yeah burn it all down <laughs> he's I'm like leaving. i'll do it too <laughs> but yeah the movie just like you know, I know I, I understand that Anne Rice had very few choices when it came to like, okay, well, I want Louis to be a rich white guy in New Orleans in the 1790s. So he's probably going to own slaves. It's just like, it's a small part of the movie. It's just, it's something that watching this movie in 2021 really doesn't sit very well. Tandy Newton plays uh, one of the, the house servants, um, Yvette. She's just she's just there for Brad Pitt to bite. And I just, you know, having seen her yeah. in all these other roles after that, I'm just like, man, she's such a powerhouse. But, you know, and there is this, this whole, um, there's a double-edged sword in Hollywood for black people, right? Of do you decide to take a, a casting call for an enslaved person? Because if you do, you're kind of like, perpetuating this Hollywood machine of making movies about enslaved people that were not very, not necessarily accurate, right? Or are made for consumption by white people to feel less guilty about things. Or, but if you don't, right? Like these stories also deserve to be told. And it's just, so it's always just so interesting for me, you know, watching scenes like this where you have all these black characters played by black actors. Uh, A lot of them are extras in this case, but it's like, man, like, you're not being portrayed very well. (laughs) But that's what Hollywood's offering, and you're going to be in a movie with Brad Pitt, so, like, what's your choice? It's either yes or no, I guess. Yeah, it's it must be. It's so tough. It's so tough. If you're not white in Hollywood, I mean, if you're not white anywhere in our society, right? Like, (laughs) this is our reckoning that we have to come come to terms with. And Like, yeah, one vampire movie at a time, we have to come to the reckoning. Yeah, well, we had this conversation. We had this conversation about 
uh, Buffy with Kendra recently, right? And it's just like, this is not good. It was not good. And I think it's it's interesting, too, because like I said, I watched this movie so much when mm-hmm. I was a kid and a couple times in my 20s. And now I'm watching it again. And I didn't think twice about it. And that's something I can admit. It's like, it's not oh, yeah. like I was thinking about these things, about these scenes and about these characters at all when I was a kid. I was taking in the vampireness mm-hmm. of it all. So that's why I love that you and I are breaking down a film like this that's quite old, like 30 mm-hmm. years old. Very much like what we're doing with Buffy. It's it's a rewatch for me and it's re-seeing it with a 21st century lens and being like, whoa, this is not cool. And this never mm-hmm. was. But we grow up and now it's like, okay, this is where we can talk about it. Yeah, so I'm curious because I have learned, thanks to the film's Wikipedia page, there is apparently going to be a television adaptation. Really? Of Interview with a Vampire? It was just announced um, like June 24th. So it's very no new. Way. AMC is adapting it. Anne Rice and Christopher Rice are involved. It's going to be... Eight episodes. I don't know if that's just like one season or if they're, if, if they're going to do like one of the books and then carry on or something. But yeah, I'm curious to see how they address these, you know, issues of like race and racism and stuff. Obviously, because what they do in the film would not fly now, right? Like there would no. be protests and stuff. People would be angry about that uh, in terms of seeing that in a 2021 film. I'm not saying yeah. we're better. <laughs> But we have changed. So I'm very curious to see how they handle those things. I wonder what they're going to do with Louis' character um, in terms of do they spend a little bit more time interrogating who he is before they turn him into a vampire? I hope so. I I love when they do this. I love when they take text and they span it out in these tv series as opposed to one movie there's only so much you can do in two hours right Mm -hmm. but if you stretch that story out and you enrich it with like that extra time and care i think this could be really good yeah did you ever watch i definitely remember seeing again parts of because i think it was on space a lot Uh, that's the canadian sci-fi channel uh there was a sequel that they made in the 2000s called queen of the damned yep yeah not as good a little bit more campy, just like taking on those like yeah. typical horror movie tropes, I think. But I think that's coming from the two, the, the early 2000s, right? Like, look at Buffy. Like, it was just so camp. Um, yeah. Especially because that was when we started experimenting with like CGI. Like, again, like the effects mm-hmm. in this movie, the blood looks a little bit unrealistic, but most of the effects in this movie are very good because they're from an era of movie making where practical effects were really the only game in town. So, you know, practical effects hold up a lot better than early computer generated effects do. I remember we were so amazed. Remember at one point Lestat jumps that horse over a bonfire (laughs) and we were like, what? (laughs) Like, did that really happen? (laughs) Well, that's just a really well-trained horse, basically. I don't think they would train a horse to jump over fire. I think that's why, you know what? That's the only thing I need to take away from this movie. How do they get the horse (laughs) to do that? (laughs) I think that's a good takeaway. No, I, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. I think... The thing that I most remember about the movie is like we were talking about the various relationships and how it's really connected to the curse of immortality and how difficult it is to be immortal, how you don't want to be alone, you know? Yeah, they're always seeking companions. That might be Louis' motivation for reaching out to a reporter and telling his story, right? Is he's just like, I'm tired of being alone, you know? And we don't know if Armand's still out there. Right. You know? Go back to Armand. (laughs) Be beautiful together. (laughs) Like... 
Like, have you read the sequels? No, I haven't. I only, I've only ever read uh, Interview. Cool. Well, if somebody out there has read the sequels or whatever, because I'm not going to bother to look them up on Wikipedia. So, you know, <laughs> are there any interesting tidbits out there that we're missing? Or Yeah, or just like, just tell us what you loved about mm-hmm. the books. And, you know, maybe we should do a book club one day. We should read one of them that we, neither of us have read. Ooh. Yeah, well, this was fun. We love doing these little bonus episodes. It's also a nice little treat for us to jump out of Buffy for a bit and explore other vampire lore. We will bring you more bonus episodes in the future. We will. Thanks for listening to Prophecy Girls. We invite you to join in the discussion by messaging us on our social media channels. Follow us at Prophecy Girls Podcast on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook, and Prophecy underscore Girls on Twitter. You can also reach out to our email at prophecygirlspodcast at gmail.com or visit our website, prophecygirls.ca. See you next week. Bye.